This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Wednesday, November the 16th, 2022. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit those horns and go. Coming up on the show today, Alex Smythe continues to share highlights from the Ontario Disability Employment Network's Rethinking Disability Conference. Melina Kazanavishis describes some holiday festivities coming to the Halifax area. And Anupala will discuss how you can support charities on Giving Tuesday after the retail barrage of Black Friday and Cyber Monday. Maybe you can do a little bit of good with your dollars or your time. Looking forward to catching up with Anu a little bit later on this hour. But let's begin the show As we always do with our top story of the day, Poland is claiming that a missile that killed two people in Polish farmlands was not a deliberate attack by Russia. Poland's president says there is no indication that Russia tried to attack Poland. He says it was possibly a Ukrainian air defense missile. The missile came down yesterday as Russia was bombing the Ukrainian power grid with missiles and exploding drones. Norman Hall lays out how NATO and G7 leaders reacted. President Joe Biden convened an emergency meeting of G7 and NATO leaders after NATO ally Poland said a Russian-made missile killed two people in the eastern part of its country near the Ukraine border. The leaders are gathered for the Group of 20 Summit in Indonesia. Biden, who was awakened overnight by staff with the news of the missile explosion, called Polish President Andrzej Duda early Wednesday to express his deep condolences for the loss of life. Biden promised full U.S. support for and assistance with Poland's investigation, and reaffirm U.S. commitment to NATO. I, Norman Hall. And there was lots of reaction that poured in this morning. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says all facts must be carefully examined before making any decisions. The important thing is to allow the investigations uh, to go forward and find out exactly what happened, but there is no question uh, that uh, this is all because and linked to the fact that Russia uh, is continuing to escalate uh, it's war of uh, war on civilians. It's a legal, unjustifiable war uh, against Ukraine. Trudeau elaborated on the impact the conflict in Ukraine is having on people. Regardless of what we find, there's no question uh, that the Russian missile barrage aimed at civilians, uh, aimed at civilian infrastructure like power uh, power center, power uh, power stations, and and uh, water, water supplies. Supply, yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, are. Uh, are at the, the cause of this, uh, this latest challenges that we're facing in Ukraine. And the Prime Minister reiterated Canada's commitment to training Ukrainian forces. We are uh, going to be extending Canada's training mission uh, in uh, Great Britain uh, until the end of next year as we train up uh, the Ukrainian military to continue to be strong against, uh, against this Russian invasion. And the Prime Minister is on his way back home today after the G20 meetings in Bali, Indonesia. As we come back home, let's talk about some stats that Stats Canada released this morning in regards to inflation year over year. 
Inflation is at 6.9%. That is unchanged month over month. So there was no deflation or inflation in prices month over month, but year over year, still dealing with high numbers at 6.9%. Let's get to the Emergencies Act inquiry. RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky was testifying yesterday. Lucky discussed how federal ministers were becoming frustrated with the Ottawa police. By the various comments about how come this is still going on? When is this going to end? How come it's getting bigger? So I was inferring from those comments, when is uh, Ottawa Police Service going to do some enforcement? Uh, when are they going to deal with this situation? Um, I could hear the impatience. I could, I could hear the frustration. And from that, I inferred that they were losing confidence. Lucky noted that the cabinet ministers were not getting up-to-date police briefings when they were debating the use of the Emergencies Act. I guess in hindsight, yeah, that might have been something significant. Uh, honestly, there was so much information going back and forth. I'm not sure where they were at in the invocation as such. I know they were talking about it, but it was very, very fluid. I'm not sure if it would have changed anything. The former head of the Canada Border Services Agency is expected to testify today along with two other border agents. One week left, well, about a week and a half left in the hearings. Still have yet to get cabinet ministers up there. Can we please get the cabinet ministers up there already? Maybe we're building towards a main event of the evening, but we have 10 days left. Can we please get some cabinet ministers on the stand to talk about what they know? Okay, sorry. Let's uh, jump over to Canada's Auditor General, who revealed a number of reports yesterday. One of them took a closer look at how the government is dealing with the issue of chronic homelessness. Karen Hogan says it's unclear if policies are offering a tangible result. Although five years have gone by since the launch of the federal government's national housing strategy, there is still no organization in the federal government taking the lead on Canada's target to reduce chronic homelessness by 50% by 2028. Hogan says more targeted data collection is needed. Infrastructure Canada and Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation really have a big data gap. Um, they aren't collecting the information to know if those most in need or those that were targeted by projects were actually being housed in certain affordable housing units. Hogan is calling for more cross-department coordination to address the issue of chronic homelessness. Speaking of issues, there was one major sticking point going on at the climate conference in Egypt put on by the United Nations, and that's the issue of creating an international fund to support developing countries after climate disasters. Inez de la Coutura has the latest. Representatives from close to 200 countries trying to find common ground to strike a deal at the COP27 climate summit. The main sticking point, whether to create a so-called loss and damage fund meant to help developing countries rebuild after climate disasters. Countries like the U.S. and EU nations are reluctant to move forward, while developing nations argue the world's biggest polluters should pay for the damages inflicted on their economies. Some delegates have suggested negotiations could go over time into the weekend. Inez de la Quatera, ABC News, at the Foreign Desk. Let's get to our daily polls at Accessible Media is where you find us on Twitter. At Accessible Media Inc. is where you find us on Facebook. Yesterday we asked you, the world's population has reached 8 billion people. Do you ever worry about too much population growth? You disagreed with the consensus we had around this table. Only 38% of you said yes and 62% of you said no. Let's just keep putting more people on this planet and maybe one of them will be able to solve our problems. That's not actually what you said, but that's what I'm inferring. I'm like the RCMP commissioner. I infer 
all kinds of things. Let's get to today's daily poll at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Of course, we've been talking a whole bunch about employment this week as we had Alex on the ground at the Ontario Disability Employment Network's Rethinking Disability Conference. But, of course, we talk about employment a lot on this show, both for people with disabilities, but just for workplace trends in general. So today, if we're going to be talking about jobs, I want to know, what's your favorite part about your job? Is it the people? Is it the paycheck? Is it the work? Or is it other? And as always, I demand of you, if you are going to vote other, you must write in. I will find you. I will go to your house and I will make you tell me what your other is. I'm going on vacation on Friday. I'll have time. I will find you. So if you vote other, you better write in at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. This one's easy for me, guys. It's the people. I love the people that I work with. I get to have amazing conversations with people like Andrika and Eliza before and after the show. Me and Bruce McLaren and Daniel Penamondo and Kingsley Juco are always having a good time. Love hanging out with Leanne Brown after hours. Getting to hang out the last couple days with Alex Smythe is a good time. I'm a very lucky man. I love the people that I work with. So for me, it's an easy one. It's the people. Alex Smythe, what about you? Well, considering, Dave, that you just nearly went full Liam Neeson and taken on uh, on our, our listeners, making sure that they uh, uh, they fill in what, what their other means, I, I, I agree that people are great. I love being able to spend time with you and the rest of our team working on this show. To me, I think it's the work that we're able to do here at AMI. I, I think that's really something that's very special. And I, I've always kind of had that in my mind every single day I come to work. I, I come with a smile on my face. I'm, I'm ready and excited to do the work. We get to cover and, and profile a great community. We get to support the disability community and, and be advocates for them when times call for it. So I, I'm always very, uh, I realized how fortunate I am to be in the position I am. I, I didn't think that you know, I would be able to do something like this on a, a day-to-day as a career. So that, for me, is my number one. Let's uh, cut that one up and send that one to marketing. We'll put that on some nice uh, AMI TikTok ads. Eliza Rocco, what about you? A combination of all of the above, I would say. Um, the people are, are certainly amazing. I love working with everyone on the crew. It's, it's, just, it's, it's truly one of the best workplaces I've ever worked in, people-wise. Um, other, I'm going to put in an other in there as well. I also like that this office is not too far from where I live. Nice, I, I used nice. To commute. The commute. <laughs> <laughs> I used to commute an hour plus to work every day. Now my commute is about 15 minutes, and I really appreciate that in the morning. Um, and then, but my biggest one, like Alex, is is the work we do. I get to put on with the uh, other members of the crew and you guys as well. I get to put on an, such an important quality show every single weekday. And that that represents such a diverse, amazing community. And I, I'm just, it fills me with joy and pride to do it every day. I didn't mean to have this daily poll turn into us patting ourselves <laughs> on the back, but that's okay. We have long arms we and we it. can do we so. Yeah, it. we deserve it. It's just like when I eat the meatball sub every afternoon. I deserved this. I don't <laughs> need to eat do. a salad. I'm going to eat this dirty, dirty sub. Eliza, thank you for this. At Accessible Media is where you find us on Twitter. At Accessible Media Inc. is where you find us on 
Facebook. That's where you vote. And again, if you vote other, as Alex said, I have a particular set of skills. I'm like Liam Neeson. I will find you. Speaking of Alex, let's head back to him because Alex has the National Weather Update. Here's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Starting in St. John's, Newfoundland, it's cloudy with a chance of snow in the morning and a mix of sunny clouds in the afternoon, and the high is 1. In Halifax, Nova Scotia, it's cloudy with rain later and up to 10 millimeters expected. Wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour, and the high there is 7. In Montreal, Quebec, it's snowfall with up to 10 centimeters expected, and a special weather statement is in effect due to the snow. The high is minus 2. To Ottawa, Ontario, there's snow off and on today, and up to 4 centimeters expected, and a weather advisory is in effect due to the snow as well. The high is minus 1. Here in Toronto, Ontario, up to 2 centimeters of snow is uh, expected this morning. Then it's cloudy with a chance for showers in the afternoon. It's not a very pleasant day out. It's going to be wet. It's going to be cool. So watch out for that. And there's also a weather advisory in effect due to the snow. And two is the high. Uh, only two centimeters? Come on. I, I walked in today. There was definitely more than two centimeters on the ground. You know, that that's what they called for uh, for today, Dave. And, and there could be some carryover from, from last night. I, so. That's true. That yeah. that's fair. That's fair. I suppose I suppose time frames do matter. But but I'm yeah. but I'm telling you, there was more than two centimeters on the ground. Absolutely. Absolutely. And over to Thunder Bay, Ontario. It's mainly cloudy with a high of minus three. In Winnipeg, Manitoba. It's clouds rolling in and light snow is expected later. The high is negative five. In Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, it's mainly cloudy with light snow later and wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour. The high is minus three. In Calgary, Alberta, clouds rolling in with a chance of snowfall today and wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour. Zero is the high. Up in Edmonton, Alberta, my old stopping ground, it's mainly cloudy with possible snowfall, and minus four is the high. Up in Yellowknife Northwest ter- Territories, just be thankful you're not there today, Dave. It's mainly sunny. Minus 20 is the high, and with the wind chill, it'll feel more like minus 30. Hard pass. <laughs> Beautiful place to go, but just not right today. Uh, over to Vancouver, BC. It's a mix of sun and clouds. A fog advisory is in effect, and the high is eight. And finally, in Victoria, B.C., it's mainly sunny. A fog advisory is in effect there as well. And the high is 10. That's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Yep, we've officially entered the point of the year where the rest of the country is entirely jealous of British Columbia. Coming up after the break, Alex will remain here hanging out with me in Studio 5 and share another featured interview from the Ontario Disability Employment Network's Rethinking Disability Conference. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. We were beyond pleased to be invited to the Ontario Disability Employment Network's Rethinking Disability Conference that's taking place in the Toronto area this week. It continues today, in fact. But we had Alex Smythe on the ground there earlier in the week, and Alex brought back a whole whack of interviews to share with us. So, Alex, which interview did you want to share in this segment? 
Yeah, so in this one, I'm actually speaking to a rep from Odin itself, Dr. Jennifer Croson, who was at the conference leading a, a talk, and so she had a lot to share in terms of research and information, so I wanted to find out what people can expect from her talk and information they should know. Dr. Croson, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. So can you tell us a bit about your session today and, and what was the topic? Sure. So my session was around employment as a goal, engaging with families. Um, and where it, you know, what informed the session, I guess you could say, is the research that I've been doing with the Ontario Disability Employment Network on, youth, on, on the youth success strategy. And so why do you want to include families in terms of setting employment as a goal? Why is that a key and a focus for your session? It's a really good question. And part of what I talked about in that session is about how, you know, we have to start early. And that and that early starts at home, right? So it starts not just with the attitudes that parents, caregivers have in terms of what their child's future might look like, um, but also about what they're going to encourage their child to do at home. So I'm talking chores, I'm talking all these things that we talk about and we know, but sometimes children with disabilities, particularly those with developmental disabilities, which is what my research focused on, they get left out of those conversations um, and left out of those expectations. And what I'm saying is that we need to change that. We need to change that way of thinking. And so building those routines, those skills at home at a younger age yeah. can be key for, for uh, employment later? Absolutely. That's 100% what was one of the messages of my session. The other thing that I really talked about was this, how um, families, and I speak to this as a parent of a child with a disability, you know, that we are told really early on that your child will probably not achieve. You know, we're not told to have high expectations for our children who have disabilities. And so one of the messages that I give in that workshop is we need to rethink that narrative. We need to try and encourage parents to see the ability in their child, you know, versus, um, versus what they can't do. And I just want to, I hope that I am not making it sound like that's just what parents think. Parents are, are, are told, you know, by people who think they know what they're talking about when it you know, to raise a child with a disability, that your child will not do this, your child will not do that. So what, of course, re your reaction is going to be as a parent, right? So we're trying to challenge that way of thinking in our session. Do you feel like the messaging or, or the uh, philosophy is changing at all of, around, uh, you know, trying to get those with the uh, disabilities into the workforce that you're talking about, like this is some of the messaging that you've received and other parents have received. Has it changed at all in the past 10, 15, 20 years? Yes, I think it has changed, but I think it's changed because of conferences like this, because of conversations that are happening here. But that dominant narrative that surrounds the lives of people with disabilities still needs to shift. Right? And that dominant narrative is really informing how parents are told about their child and how they're told to think about their child's future, how the education system is, is you know, embedded in the education system. It, it doesn't allow for our young people with developmental disabilities to have the same experiences as their, as their peers, and that connects to employment. Right? 
Is there a specific area that you would say, okay, this is where the most work needs to be done? Is it education? Is it somewhere else? Oh, it's everywhere. But, you know, it's everywhere. But in, in, in education in particular, so one of the things I talk about in my workshop is, for example, we expect all high school students in Ontario to complete 40 hours of volunteer service in order to get their, their high school diploma. We don't expect that of young people with developmental disabilities because we don't expect them to get their high school diploma. No. We need to rethink that because we know from volunteer experience you get you learn communication skills, you learn responsibility, you learn community involvement. So we need our young people all to have that experience. We know that young people with developmental disabilities are not given the same access to co-op and to paid summer jobs and those, those things that you probably had when you were a young person, right? And it helps you get a job as an adult. Young people with developmental disabilities need the same. What does the conference offer up in terms of a benefit to have all these different organizations, all these different groups in one place at the same time. Now, obviously, this is also the first time that mm -hmm. we've been able to gather in, the, in a few years. Yeah. But, so what does it mean to have all these different voices and all these different activists here together? Well, we're all, we're, you know, everybody here, I think, really believes that people with disabilities deserve a place in employment, right? So there's, there's, we are all on the same page, but we are here to, to network and to share ideas. So certainly in my session this morning, I heard from people who were like, yes, we agree with what you're saying, Jennifer. Here's some things that we've done in our community to think about what you are saying. So there's that kind of networking ability. There's a kind of inspiring, you know, we're inspiring each other to go back to our communities and to spread the messages that we're creating here at this at this conference. Now, the information and the strategies that you, you've been talking about, this isn't just based on anecdotal. There's also research and, and yes. evidence behind it. Can you talk a bit about that research? Yeah. So last year, so in 2021, I did a piece of research for Odin, um, and we call it the Youth Success Strategy. So what I did, what, my, what I was interested in is what is it about programs that support young people who have barriers to employment. So disability could be one of those, but we know there are inter intersectional you know, barriers that, that people face to employment. Um, what was it about their programs that were successful? And what was it about their programs that were more challenging? And what were, what were they identifying? So I spoke with employment service providers in Ontario, in Manitoba, Quebec, and in, um, Ireland, actually, which was kind of fun. I didn't actually get to go to Ireland. Okay. Um, it was on Zoom, but anyways. <laughs> um, so what did I find? I found that attitudes really had an impact, you know? So what, what they were saying is they may get a 17, 18, 19-year-old young person with a developmental disability coming to their program, but that young person wasn't coming with the same skill set as their peers. So for example, they didn't have soft employment skills. Yeah. So communication, you know, kind of knowing how to dress to come in to, to, to work, transportation. They didn't have those things that you would get if you'd had somebody who had the expectations that you would do these things if you'd had experiences in school. They weren't coming with the same literacy skills. Literacy is something that is, is challenging for, for, for everybody. And literacy looks different for everybody. But what I was saying in my research is that we need to find different ways of allowing people to access the literacy that is for them, right? We can't just write off and say, well, sorry, you have a developmental disability. You can't read. Well, rethink that. So thinking outside of the box, lots of different things. 
now this may be a bit of a, a loaded question, but do you, do you see the future as as bright for kind of changing the the narrative, the perspectives, and and building a more inclusive environment where people with disabilities can get the same level of education, resources, and employment? Yes, because I'm an optimist, right? But I think it's gonna it's gonna take hard work, and it's gonna take a community effort, and it's gonna take a village, right? So it's going to mean we need to think differently about how we talk to parents when they first learn their child is gonna have a disability. It starts there. Then when they go to elementary school, are we making sure that that elementary school is fully inclusive? Then when they go to secondary school, are we making sure that they are being invited to you know, participate in the academic curriculum and not asked to sit over in the corner, right? Then when they leave school, are they going to have the same opportunities to have summer jobs? You know, so are we then gonna have employers who are going to recognize the benefit of having being an inclusive hirer. So there's so many elements to this future yeah. that I know is being created by the people who are at this conference. You know, but I'm optimistic, you know, certainly by I have a son who has a developmental disability and certainly by the time he's an adult, I'm optimistic that he will have a job and he will live independently. That's that's awesome and that's great to hear. Now for other parents at home who who may be in a similar situation, mm -hmm. where can they go to try to find more information or, or maybe access some resources? So they can they can get in touch with Odin because we you know we have this we have this research you know which gets shared. Now we don't typically hear from parents to be fair, um, but the the, the um, research that I did we did create into webinars, and over the course of the last you know year we delivered that we that webinar to school boards. Um, to we did one a session for the Canadian Down Syndrome Society. We did a session for CanChild. So we are trying to push this message out there so that it can have a wider audience, right? Because it's not, it's parents and caregivers, but it's also educators. It's also employment service providers. We want everybody to carry the same message. That's awesome. Dr. Jennifer Croson, thank you so much for taking time, chat with me a bit about this. It's such an important issue, so I'm glad we could chat about it. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for having me and, and allowing me to have this conversation with you. Alex, I'm picking up on a theme here with the last couple of interviews that we've shared, both with Project Search yesterday and this interview with Dr. Crossan. It's interesting that so oftentimes we're talking about transition and building blocks, giving people experiences as a way in, as a foot into the labor market, that people forget that oftentimes volunteer work, internships, small interpersonal connections end up making a really big deal in your career. So it's interesting that two interviews in a row now, that's really been the thoughtful consideration that so many researchers and advocates are working on saying, we need to make sure we're giving people a foot in the door. Absolutely. And, and the other takeaway is too, is at that age, when you are in the education stream, you're in a a state where there's a lot of structure. There's there's a daily routine. There's daily progress. There's uh, skills that are being learned in the school environment. But it's also a time where you learn those skills by, as you mentioned, volunteering, as starting to get your first employment opportunities. And and so targeting that age range and and that time is really key because that can be where a lot of impact can be made. And and so if you if you don't invest when uh, people are at that age, it, it can really be a detriment when you're trying to get into 
uh, the more established mm-hmm. workforce later on. And the fact is, if you're putting people three or four years behind their peers, if they're not getting those entry-level opportunities or volunteer opportunities till they're in post-secondary or when they're out of secondary school and their colleagues now have two or three years experience ahead of them, it makes it even more difficult to start establishing and making that case to where you belong in the workforce and even finding out what you like, right? What you like to do, uh, the kind of jobs you do when you're 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, end up framing what you think you might do for the rest of your life. At least you know what you don't want to do when you're doing those kinds of jobs. Alex, uh, we heard the researcher mention it, but uh, hit us again with where people can go to learn more about Odin's research. And I'll tell you, this, this website's tough, so careful with the acronym. Yeah, so it is odinnetwork.com. Now, the thing is, it is spelled O-D-E-N-E-T-W-O-R-K.com. So only one N for Odin Network. Yeah, I was struggling with that one on Monday when I said goodbye to you to tell people where to go with more. I said odinnetwork.com or odinnetwork.com, which can get pretty confusing. But uh, yeah, if someone just types into the Google machine, which is always a great way to do things, Ontario Disability Employment Network, That's a great suggestion. You know, sometimes why worry about specific addresses when you can just go to your Google machine. Coming up next, Anupala describes how you can support charities on Giving Tuesday, which is coming down the pipeline. But first, here is Canadian press reporter Karen Rebo with your Morning Business Minutes. Canada's main stock index closed higher yesterday ahead of October inflation data this morning that economists are expecting will stoke their belief that inflation has peaked. Toronto's TSX index gained 72 points yesterday to close at 19,994. New York's Dow Jones average added 56 points and the Nasdaq surged 162. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei index gained 38 points and our dollar is trading overseas this morning at 75.47 U.S. European markets are mostly higher this morning. Investors have been jittery, though, about global risks after Poland said it believed a Russian-made missile killed two people there. Details of the missile strike yesterday were unclear, including who fired it and from where. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and U.S. President Joe Biden in Indonesia for the Group of 20 summit promised full support for Poland's investigation. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Karen Rebo. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown. Giving Tuesday is November the 29th. So after a frenzy of retail on Black Friday and Cyber Monday, it's a chance for you to support charities. Last year, over $40 million was raised for organizations across the country. So let's look ahead with Anu Paula. Anu is the founder of Anu Vision Coaching and Consulting. Hey, good morning, Anu. Great to chat with you once again. Morning, Dave. So Anu, I think this is a bit self-evident. But tell me a bit more about the intention behind Giving Tuesday. Honestly, it is a very simple concept. It just encourages people to do good in the world, whether that's through, you know, charitable giving or acts of kindness. Now, I would say I hope we don't need just one day out of the entire year to encourage us to do good. (laughs) Um, But it's definitely a day that has been set aside for individuals to actually consciously or intentionally do random not even random, but just acts of kindness. <laughs> or maybe offset the guilt of spending uh, hundreds of dollars on uh, online think, sales. 
I was thinking about that as you just began this, uh, you know, this segment. <laughs> it's a little bit of therapy after your retail therapy, and, it, and it's in its own given way. I, I knew I, I know I mentioned that one stat about the forty million dollars raised across Canada last year, but this is something that impacts a lot of different organizations, both in Canada and and across the globe. So that means that people can give back in a number of different ways. So how can people express that generosity? You know, sometimes it can be as simple as doing something kind for your neighbor or a friend or making somebody just smile. You know, sometimes I, I find that we're just going about our day and I find often people are just like looking at the ground or looking at their phones and like giving somebody a compliment or something like that. Like there's just so many ways, you know, to that you can just give without even thinking too far, too hard. Yeah, I think that's something you and I have explored a couple of times in these conversations that giving can mean a lot of different things, whether it be a donation to a charity or whether it be your time or as you say, even just offering somebody a compliment, although careful because you might creep somebody out. Be very cognizant of the way that you give compliments, especially if you're a six foot three, 300 pound man. You got to be very, very careful on that front. Uh, now, we've 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 visited this before. New, sorry, I apologize for my cynicism. Uh, what, are, what are the benefits of giving to your mind? especially on a day like Giving Tuesday? There have been a lot of, uh, there's been a lot of research that associates giving to health and wellness and happiness. So I think it kind of triggers those endorphins. It makes you feel really good. Like, I don't know about you, but when I do something nice for somebody else, um, I feel really, really good. So, you know, and when you feel good, it automatically triggers something inside your body or your heart that um, just triggers those great endorphins, which, and you know, result basically in, um, yeah, just making just making you feel really good. I, I knew I'm trying to remember because it, it was either brought up with you on the show or a different contributor where there's actually been some scientific research done about asking for help, that humans by their nature are oftentimes uncomfortable asking for help. But the reality is that when you do ask someone for help, that can actually strengthen your relationship with them because you've shared a little bit of vulnerability. And I think it's because of that endorphin you just mentioned that we actually have a desire to help people. And it's so funny that we have a desire to help people as humans, but we're almost afraid to ask for help. It really speaks to the ways in which our vulnerabilities can make us uh, self-conscious. Yeah, that is so true. And I was one of those back in the day. And I was just trying to be Miss Independent. And, you know, I don't need anyone's help. I can do it myself. And and, um, and eventually more and more as I got comfortable with that idea, I felt there, you know, it's just it did strengthen my relationships with other people. And it took away that stress of having to just do it all on your own, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. whether it was just navigating outs outdoors or needing help with something on the computer, but not having to feel so guilty about asking for help. I think we as people with vision loss often do um, hold that guilt. And I don't think we should. I've certainly let go of that because how many times have people asked me for my support? As, as human beings, we all need each other. So I've gotten way more comfortable with mm. that concept. Yeah, and, and, that's, and that's at the crux of this conversation, right? That we are interdependent human beings existing and depending on one another. So now that we've established that, and now that we've established the purpose 
of something like Giving Tuesday, we know that the barrage in the email inbox is going to begin and the social media pushes are going to begin. And especially when we're talking about donating online in a world of here's my cynicism again, my pessimism, my cynicism shining through, we're always concerned about the internet scam. So what should people be mindful of in regards to donating safely, especially online? Yeah, you bring up a very, very important point. And I think anytime you make any kind of transaction online, it is very, very important to ensure that you are using um, safe portals. So for example, um, you know, especially if you're giving to a charity, for example, you want to check to make sure that they are actually a legit charity. So CRA is a great place to investigate to make sure that they are actually indeed um, a registered charity. Often on their website, they'll have their charitable number on as well. Um, I'm sure you have a record of your donation. So you could do a screenshot. Thank God for our cell phones, we can easily do a screenshot um, either on our phone or on the computer. You can do a printout of it. So there's just different ways to Record keeping uh, is very important. You know, send yourself an email. Quite often, we will get an email confirmation when we give uh, a donation as well. So there's just different ways to, you know, keep a, a somewhat of a, a digital or a physical paper trail. Um, so there's just a couple of examples. And here's another topic that we've discussed at a very broad level before, Anu, but it's always worth a reminder as we head into the holiday charity and charitable push where do you suggest people go for guidance to find out what organization or which organizations to support? Yeah, there are a couple of good organizations or, or portals, I would say. One is Canada Helps, where it lists various organizations all over Canada um, where you can um, check out. Because sometimes, you know, you may be passionate a particular cause, but you don't really know which organizations are out there. Maybe you want to support local. So Canada Helps is a really good place to, you know, start your your search. Um, there is also Home Instead Charities, and this particular organization focuses more on seniors-related um, organizations, mm. and that's a really, really good one. Um, for one of the organizations that I work with in the U.S., um, we use their um, portal for a, uh, it's, it's called Give 65, and they have a, a, a chart, what do you call it, like a, a campaign for Giving Tuesday as well. Mm-hmm. And it's like a crowdfunding um, uh, site. And so those are two really, really good places to start. And if I'm going to offer a little bit of a piece of advice here as well, I know this is your department. You're the person who actually has some expertise here, whereas I'm just some jabroni who wanders through the World Wide Webs. There are a bunch of options over the course of these next couple of weeks, even before Giving Tuesday, where as you're going through some of these online retailers, they're allowing you to donate certain amounts of money to charity. Or if they're offering you kind of extra points, like loyalty points, those can be donated to charities as well. One of my friends has done a lot of work with an organization called Give a Mile that's about reuniting people uh, with families when they have terminal illnesses or chronic illnesses and sicknesses. And what their entire purpose is is 
don't worry about giving us money. Give us your air miles. Give us your aeroplan points. Give us your RBC points. Give us these things, and we can translate these into ter- tickets and airlines for, uh, airfares for people, which is such an interesting way of people thinking about, okay, maybe money's a little bit tight, but what am I using my air miles for? Oh, great. Here's a perfect place to put them. So there's lots of ways sort of inside your retail experience where you can already be considering this before you even get to Giving Tuesday. That is so true. And this is where people can be really creative. And I love that. Great cause. Anu, thank you for this. I always feel a a breath of positivity after we speak. So have a great couple of weeks and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much, Dave. That's Anu Paula, the founder of Anu Vision Coaching and Consulting. Coming up after the break, Milena Kazanavishis will be here. We're also in the holiday spirit with Milena as she will tell you about some holiday festivities coming to the Halifax area. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Milena Kazanavishis is here from Halifax, Nova Scotia for a community report. Hey, good morning, Milena. How are you? Good morning, Dave. I'm sick as a dog. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> what got, what's got you? I have no idea. I came on last night. The whole fever, sore throat. So I, I'm, I'm, I'd like to say there's a two by four holding me up right now. Okay. All right. Well, yeah. I tell you what, Milena, if in the middle of this, you get a little too beaten up or you, or you can't continue, you just wave, you just wave the white flag and uh, we'll pick up the steam for you. Okay. Excellent. All well, right. Thank well, you. <laughs> well, let's start with a little bit of optimism here because the holiday season is around the corner and you wanted to talk about some of the holiday festivities that Haligonians can experience. So what's worth catching up on this year? All right, so um, this Saturday, the 19th of November, um, the whole Christmas festival festivities, if if we want to call it, starts off with our annual 27th year of, uh, it's called the Saltwire Parade of Lights, so the Christmas Parade of Lights. Uh, Saturday, the 19th, uh, the route has changed a little bit because of construction everywhere, so I'm just going to go through it very quickly. It starts at the North Park in Cogswell Roundabout, and our local uh, viewers will will know where that is. Heads down Brunswick, left on Duke, all the way down the hill, and right on Barrington, back up to Spring Garden Road, left on University, or South Park, I should say, and then finishes off, as per usual, at the Children's Hospital, which that's, I think is really great. That's yeah. a complicated parade route. Yeah. <laughs> Don't you guys have any straight streets in Halifax? Absolutely not, and there's hill after hill. So, <laughs> look, I'll, do, I'll put it this way. It starts at 6. If if you've ever been to a parade around here, probably won't get going until seven. Um, and it's the first year that Mrs. Mrs. Claus is going to be with Mr. Santa Claus. Oh, nice, nice. The whole, the whole gang getting together. <laughs> uh, so so um, yeah. So beyond the parade, anything else that sort of gets associated to that? Yeah. So so I, I found um, a website. It's a bit of a strange name. It's called Wander. Lust with kids. So that's W A N D E R L U S T with kids.com. And in there, it's, it's quite accessible. It lists all of the dis- district um, 16 Christmas tree lighting. So Dartmouth, Bedford, Sackville, um, Halifax, etc. All sorts of, um, you know, light um, events, uh, free eggnog, things like that. And, and you know, I, I think I say this every year, Dave, that 
even though I can't see, I love the Christmas lights, especially when you can grab a couple of friends and walk walk about in 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 your neighborhood and you know it's you if you have some sight then you can look at the pretty dazzles and if you've got none then well your friends better be up to par for describing <laughs> but it's 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 a nice way so there's a whole listing of all sorts of events wonderlustwithkids.com and of course all that's going to go up on our blog including the uh, lengthy parade route the confusing parade route for the Santa <laughs> Claus parade on our blog ami.ca/now uh Milena, there's more than just the Festival of Lights and the parade and Mrs. Claus and Santa Claus and Wonderlust for Kids. The CNIB is also having a party in Halifax. It's the ninth annual holiday party. So what's going to be happening? What's going down for this uh, CNIB party? All right. Uh, so I think everybody there is super stoked and excited because it's live. Uh, I don't think we've had the Christmas party for Oh my goodness! Two years yeah, well, since COVID. Certainly and, uh, since yeah. certainly since 2019. Certainly since 2019. Yeah. So it's a it's a cookie potluck. So feel free to get something at your local bakery, make your own cookies, bring those along to share with all the people that will be there. There's a sing along. There'll be a band. There's uh, games and trivia, and um, you know all sorts of um, warm beverages. Nothing alcoholic. <laughs> It is the CNIB, and it is uh, at the local um, CNIB office on Almond Street. Um, starts at 6 o'clock till 8 o'clock on December the 6th, which is a Tuesday. So December the 6th, 6 to 8, Cookie Potluck, Christmas festivities, games, trivia, sing-along, all of that stuff. I'm going to say, though it doesn't state that, consider wearing your masks, please. Um, you know, you can sneak that cookie underneath your mask, uh, the this thing is not going away, this COVID. So consider wearing your mask. It's not mandated. And um, do RSVP to jeff.deviller at cnib.ca. You can call them at 902-456-5982. Milena, I hope, uh, I hope things clear up for you a little bit here in the next couple of weeks so you can actually go enjoy that party and put a couple of those cookies inside your mask. It's kind of like being a squirrel, right? We can just keep <laughs> cookies inside our masks and enjoy them as we please. December the 6th for that event for the CNIB party in Halifax. And again, Melena shared the email address of Jeff. We'll make sure that goes up on our blog as well, ami.ca slash now. Melena, you've also got some personal news to share here. And I just want to kind of clear out and let you give an update on your guide dog, Lewis. All right. So I, I thought I'd bring this in because um, I, th there's a bit of a misunderstanding when you get your new guide dog or you retire a guide dog, and which is happening with my Mr. Lewis. I hope I don't start to cry and fever on all this, but my Lewis is nine and a half, and so I will not be at the Christmas party <laughs> at CNIB. I will be in training as of November 28th till December 14th at CNI in Morristown, New Jersey with a new four-legged partner. And, um, you know, Dave, for our viewers and listeners, it's a complete and utter emotional roller coaster. Whether it's your first, second, and this is my third guide dog partner, I'm uh, retiring. There's that anxiety of, will this new dog like me? Because Lewis didn't want nothing to do with me when we were partnered up initially. Nothing, <laughs> like my other two. And then it's the whole training, 5.30 in the morning till 8 o'clock at night. And then when you're done your two and a half weeks, if it's a consecutive, uh, you know, any, any dog besides your first, you come home and it's an entire year of learning each other. Mm. And these guys, no matter how well they're trained, 
to a lot of people's misunderstanding, they will try and trick you into all sorts of things. I'm smiling for those who can't see me because I don't think not a, a single one of my guide dogs has ever not done a kitty corner crossing when I've returned within the first month or, you know, to them I'm like, oh, here's the shortcut. We don't need to be at a curb. I'm just going to go right into traffic and the cross. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So, <laughs> so this, this is the thing about entrusting your life to something with the intelligence of a yes. four-year-old. Yeah. Well, I think their intelligence maybe is a little bit more, but I'm not sure. <laughs> you know, and uh, so I think it depends on the four-year-old. That, well, that's true. Let me guess. You were the most intelligent four-year-old, right? No, the opposite. I'm barely an intelligent 40-year-old. Uh, sorry, Melinda. I, I told you I'd get out of the way, and I'm not getting out of the way. Sorry, no, continue. No, 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 so, you know, I just I just wanted to point out that um, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a whole – it's, you don't just arrive home and magic wand and, and you're off working with your new partner um, because each dog is different. Each dog walks different. Each dog behaves different. Um, and there's trials and tribulations for the first year, guaranteed, whether it's your first, second, third, or fourth. And uh, I don't think I've ever met anyone in class who has not cried over mm. retiring their dog, whether the dog has died or whether the dog is gone staying with you or, you know, somewhere else. These these are these are living creatures that have been with you 24/7. So, and by the way, for anybody wondering, Lewis is going to my parents. He will live nice. lifestyles of the rich and famous. Nice. Yeah, I've <laughs> I've I've volunteered to take a few of my friends' uh, retired guide dogs along the way too because uh, I've developed some relationships with guide dogs over the years as well. So I just absolutely adored. And the fact is, they, there's still a lot of love for those dogs to, to enjoy and, and, and a retirement for them to enjoy as well after years of hard work. Milena, you mentioned that you're going down to the organization in Morristown, New Jersey, and, and maybe mm-hmm. this question's too personal and you can tell me to shut up and I'll move on. Why that Never. organization <laughs> in particular? Because there are a lot of really great organizations around the country and around, around the continent. Yeah, there, there are. I, I, um, you know, my over 20 years ago when I first started looking for guide dog schools, um, and a lot of the guide dog schools came down, and I, in fact, was denied by quite a few of them because I didn't have proper cane skills. So you know, you have to know where you're going, what you're doing. Uh, at least you have to be able to get about. And uh, the seeing eye in Morristown, New Jersey, was probably the hardest. And you, you tell me something, I'm not going to get it, and I'm probably going to go after you like that pit bull like so it's it's been over the years the seeing eye in morristown new jersey they are the oldest um guide dog school in north america started in 1929 um by morris frank and dorothy Hustis. morris frank who was blind himself um actually there's a there's a old video somewhere of him crossing the new york street intersections with his very first guide dog named buddy who was a with who was a, a female shepherd and actually he named all his shepherds uh buddy all oh. his dogs were named buddy i don't know why but so yeah so i've i've just uh it, it's you know it's plus i like to travel and get out of dodge so yeah, yeah. that's fair that's fair too definitely a reason yeah. to go have a little bit of fun in new jersey well listen milena like i said to you after your last story I hope that you feel better soon. I'm sorry that uh, whatever got you has taken a grip. Hopefully it only, is, only hangs around for a couple of days, a little bit of orange juice, oh. a little bit of rest, and hopefully you're bounced back and fully at 100% before your trip down to New Jersey. Thank you. That's Melinda <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I won't see you for the December one, so Merry Christmas to all. And to all, a good night. <laughs> Thank you, Milena. Merry Christmas to you and yours as well. That's Milena Kazanavishis, community reporter in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And I'll give you the blog address one more time, ami.ca.
slash now. Let's wrap up the hour with a couple of news stories. NASA's new moon rocket has finally blasted off after weeks of delay for its debut flight with three test dummies aboard. Today's Florida launch brings the U.S. a little bit closer to putting astronauts back on the lunar surface for the first time since the end of the Apollo program 50 years ago. Artemis mission manager Mike Serafin says it's a special day. Today we got to witness the world's most powerful rocket take the earth by its edges and shake the wicked out of it. And it was quite a sight. It's quite a sight. Shake the wicked out of it. That's an interesting turn of phrase. NASA Administrator Bill Nelson says this is just the beginning. Took a long time coming to get here. Uh, Last time we were on the moon, Apollo 17, and we still have a long ways to go. And this is just the test flight. NASA hopes to send four astronauts around the moon on the next flights in 2024 and land humans as early as 2025. Like, it's a, it's an interesting deal. Sometimes I wonder if we make too big a deal. Like, we have already walked on the moon and we've already flown around the moon. What have we been doing for 50 years? Yes, working on reverse propulsion and landing on Mars. So that counts as something. But back to the moon we go. Just like... Back to the show we go. Coming up in the second hour of the show, Brock Richardson will be here with a sports chat, and I'll have the regional news update. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. It's Wednesday, November the 16th, 2022. Coming up in the second hour of the show, we have another highlight interview from Odin's Rethinking Disability Conference. And in the Accessibility Story Roundup, I will tell you about two new agreements between Accessibility Standards Canada and the government of Ontario. But before we get to any of that, we have the regional news update. Beginning in British Columbia, a new integrated former nurse who once worked in the neighborhood. To the planned facility at 58th West Hastings Street, once complete, the 10-story centre will include 231 units of social housing and provide health care services. Over to the prairies, the throne speech took place in Manitoba yesterday. The government is promising more money for health care, new oversights for teachers, and a crackdown on crime. Premier Heather Stevenson wants to expand private partnerships to eliminate waiting lists in the health sector. We had to go out of province and sometimes even out of the country to deliver those services. And unfortunately, that should have been able to be done here. And in other provinces, they are able, they have more capacity to be able to keep that within their province. NDP leader Wab Kanu expressed concern about public money going to the private health sector. We say that's wrong. We should be investing in public health care here in Manitoba to deliver care to you when you need it. The province is also committing to a new teacher registry and an independent body to govern teacher misconduct. 
And then over to the Atlantic provinces, the Nova Scotia government says new regulations mean the province's privately owned power utility could be fined if it fails to address service complaints from industrial customers in a reasonable time frame. Minister of Natural Resources and Renewables Tory Rushton says that large industrial customers of Nova Scotia Power have lost millions of dollars over the years due to outages. Going forward, complaints to Nova Scotia Power from industrial customers must be addressed within 18 months or the utility will be fined $25,000 per month that the complaint goes unresolved. Let's bring in Brock Richardson. It's time for a sports chat. Okay, Brock, every now and then something happens in the sports world that gets stuck in my craw and really annoys me. Yesterday, Mm -hmm. Tom Brady made a joke because he played well in Germany and said, maybe I should consider going to the CFL to play up there in Canada because I, quote, play really well outside the country. And then what happens inside Canadian sports media? (laughs) Imagine Tom Brady in the CFL. Oh, would you look at that? Let's (laughs) chat about this. Brock, it's so earnest and it annoys the heck out of me. Tell me, what's your take on this uh, joke that Tom Brady told? Listen, uh, I didn't. I'll be honest with you. I didn't even realize it was it was a joke when I saw it on TSN. They they the way it was written, they did not say it was a joke. They made it almost seem like it was serious, which then alluded to the fact what you just said, uh, which made sports media world just go nuts. And they, if that's what they were looking for, they they got what they wanted. And at this point, I I guess I'll remind folks that are going crazy is that when his career um, is over, he is reportedly supposed to be going to Fox for a 10-year deal for a bucket of money, um, $275 million over 10 years. He has no interest in the CFL. It was a joke, uh, which I'm glad you let me know, because again, I bought into the TSN and their what they posted. But yeah, I, I don't think he has any desire plan or anything else to go to the CFL. Remember he's in his forties folks. Like this is, this is the thing we keep talking about. And he's still got half a season, a little under half a season to, to deal with what's going on with Tampa Bay. So let's not put the horse, um, before the carriage necessarily. Brock is that no, this was not planned. I'm, I'm putting you on the spot with this. Is there an NFL quarterback who you would like to see in the CFL? Because I'll tell you, Marcus Mariota for the Atlanta Falcons, who's having an okay year for the Falcons as they continue to contend for a playoff spot in the NFC South, he strikes me as the perfect CFL quarterback. Good arm strength, good decision-making, just mobile enough. I think he would be a spectacular CFL quarterback. Yeah, my answer to that would be, uh, and again, this is on the spot without really thinking about it, but my answer to that would be Tuatunga Viola. He would be a dynamic, dynamic uh, quarterback in the CFL. I don't necessarily think that that it's going to happen. Don't you take away my Tua, Brock. Don't you take away my sweet Tua. He's undefeated as a starter this year for my Miami Dolphins. (laughs) There you go. The other one is uh, Baltimore Baltimore Ravens. uh, quarterback Lamar Jackson. That would be one that I would would consider as well. Those would be my top uh, 
you know, top two yeah. that I would put, yeah. but neither of them I think are going to the CFL. <laughs> no, no Lamar, want... <laughs> Lamar's an MVP. He's too good to be going to the CFL. <laughs> Mm -hmm. right. <laughs> hey, Brock, I think what got lost yesterday in the Tom Brady to the CFL conversation is there was actually some really big news about a CFL quarterback potentially going to the NFL. Nathan Work, we've talked about him quite a bit, a BC native playing for the BC Lions who had a really impressive start to his rookie campaign in the CFL before being upended with a Liz Frank injury in his foot. There are reports yesterday coming out that NFL teams are going to be inviting Nathan Rourke to their training camps and their mini camps. Brock, it would be such a bummer for the CFL to lose him, but that's a little bit of exciting news. I love it when a CFL player does make their way across the border. We think about players like Doug Flutie, Warren Moon, Cameron Wake, Andrew Hawkins. It's I love it. I love it when a CFL player gets to achieve their dreams and keep chasing that NFL dream. Yeah, I mentioned it to you uh, yesterday when we were uh, chatting a little bit about this, is that I do think Nathan Rourke is going to be in the NFL um, before too long. And it's too bad because with injury, the CFL didn't get a lot of looks at him. He was sort of the the, the prized possession of the, the CFL and that, you know, young quarterback and all that, Bo Levi Mitchell aside and all that. But I mean... He was the prize possession, and, and I don't think it's going to be too long. Uh, maybe not next season, but maybe the year after that, you might see he, he'll be mm -hmm. moved on through. And it's too bad for the CFL because I love watching uh, Nathan Rourke, uh, you know, play football. And I was really hoping that uh, BC beat Winnipeg over the weekend because I wanted to see uh, Nathan Rourke in a Grey Cup because... I was really fearful that this was a situation um, that was going to happen. So. Yeah. It, no, I totally understand his point of view on this because let's say he becomes one of the greatest CFL quarterbacks of all time. Maybe his yearly earnings are going to max out at about a million dollars, which, by the way, is a ton of money. Maybe not if you have to live in Vancouver, but it's a ton of money. The thing is, if he even becomes a career backup quarterback in the NFL – People like Blaine Gambert, Gabbert have like $45 million in career earnings for just holding a clipboard for 15 years. So I, I can see where from his perspective, there's a, certainly a financial incentive to be a backup quarterback in the NFL. And frankly, if you look at some of the quarterback play around the league this year, there's some teams that I would at least give him a gander to be a starter on. Yeah, of course. And and that's the thing is that money talks. Money Money is the thing. You can you can say all the right things about the CFL that he could have a great career, but as you point out, the the money's not the same, you know. And 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 a lot of people gravitate in sports specifically because of the cost of living and 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 the traveling and all that that you have to go through. They they go towards money, and so this is the case here in this situation. Yeah, it's called professional sports for a reason. Brock, let's uh, revisit a story that uh, we have to talk about again because it continues to develop even though it's such a huge bummer. Let's talk about the Brooklyn Nets and Kyrie Irving. We laid out the story when it first broke about a suspension that he was facing from the team in regards to sharing a link to an anti-Semitic documentary on Amazon then continuing to double down and not apologize or explain his position as to why he was posting links to that documentary. 
you and I both thought that perhaps he was going to be suspended or possibly released. The Brooklyn Nets took a different approach and basically laid out a five-point plan before he could come back that included things like meeting with local Jewish leaders, meeting with the Anti-Defamation League, doing some charitable work, and meeting with the Brooklyn Nets owner, Joseph Tsai. Brock, here we are about a few weeks later, and it appears, according to reports, that Kyrie does not want to go through all these steps. What's your take on the latest with Kyrie Irving? So my take is is a quite a pointed one. Number one, I agree with the idea of most of these um things that they want him to do. And I repeat, it's the idea that I agree with. I think he should do a lot of the things that are outlined. The one that I have trouble with is the one where it's like donating money to uh, an anti-hate organization. Yes, I think that he should do that. Um, the question is, can uh, the the NBA say you need to do this? They can. Whether he will is another question. The rest of them, I'm okay with. I just don't know if we're not even at the steps of, you know, willing to apologize. I'm just not sure that saying, yeah, you, now you have to donate your own money to an anti-hate organization. Well, I, I, I just don't know that that's, that's real. If he's not willing to do it, and I, I've said on, on other programs and other situations, if I, if I, if I made a mistake and I wanted to apologize and 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 do all that, and someone said, you know, to to clear your name or help clear your name, at least you should donate X amount of money. I, I probably would just because I would want to acknowledge that I'm sorry. But as I point out, if he's not even acknowledging that he's sorry for all this, then, then what are we talking about? You know, like yeah. I think the fundamentals of all this need to be, are you sorry? Yes. And if so, then we need to move forward in an appropriate way. And for me, Dave, what I would like to see is Adam Silver kind of step in and say, okay, if you're not going to do this for Brooklyn, then we're not going to accept you in the league, period. Now, again, do I think the donation of money needs to happen? Yeah, I think it should, but I don't think you should be forced to do it either. There's there's part of what's going on here that is making me uncomfortable in the conversation that we're having more broadly. I, I, I try to sit out conversations that I'm not qualified to speak on. There have been some people who have expressed the complexity in inclusion across civil rights movements, that there are some concerns about what it is to support all forms of inclusion and the complexity that goes along with that. I always, in these situations, tell people to defer to Bomani Jones of ESPN and listen to his podcast, The Right Time with Bomani Jones. He's talking about, he's spoken about Kyrie Irving quite a bit, and I think he's put things way better than I ever could. I am somewhat uncomfortable with the idea of making Kyrie bend the knee because that's what this appears to be. It's here's these conditions to come back. We want you to make a public display of bowing down to the power. I don't like that. I think that that sends a poor message. And I think that to those who believe what Kyrie believes, that this is just an example of power making a young black man bow to other powerful forces. And I don't like the optics of that. And I don't feel super comfortable with the way the conversation has evolved in the last couple of weeks that is pitting social movements for inclusion against one another. I just think it's not productive for the overall conversation. I believe what the Brooklyn Nets should have done was have the stones and the courage 
to cut Kyrie in the first place. If you believe what he posted and his unwillingness to apologize for posting it is tet- is is, par- is is tantamount to having to put these five conditions to come back and play for you, then you clearly believe what he did was wrong. And if he was going to make meaningful action, that should have come in on his that should have come on his own accord. But they didn't have the courage just to cut him in the first place. They were trying to salvage the asset or salvage their season or please Kevin Durant. At a certain point, you just can't do that anymore. If you want to take a position of leadership and education like the Nets wanted to do, then it can't be this sort of formalized process. And where I also land on this, Brock, is that, again, these reports are that Kyrie has not been actually going to meet with the Anti-Defamation League. He's not been going to meet with local rabbis or Jewish leaders. He's sending his agent or he's sending representatives of his management team. To me, that implies this is someone who actually does not want to make amends. And at a certain point, you just have to start pulling the plug. Sorry, I know I kind of just went like word salad on you there, Brock. I just said a bunch of different things. But I'm at this point where the conversation has no longer become productive. It's become entrenched camps of different beliefs. And at this point, I think that for the Nets and for the basketball world, the better choice would be to release Kyrie. And if he wants to make amends in his own way, then we can talk about welcoming back into the league. But to create some kind of rubric or checklist to make him bow down just makes me deeply uncomfortable. Yeah, and to your point, I, I will say that what is the value of the of Kyrie Irving to you as an organization if you don't believe what he's doing is is right? You can you can argue that the 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 value of Kyrie as an athlete is what it is, but if he if he's not you know, buying into your, as an organization, core beliefs and what you believe is right and wrong, what's that value to you? Because he's not going to want to play for you if you make him, as you point out, and very well pointed out, he's not going to want to play for you anyways if you make him bow down and say, well, if you want this, you need to do this. And so to me, if if the if Kyrie Irving is of value to you, I, I'm just not sure that you're going to get that. And so, as you point out, releasing him is probably the best thing to do. And this is going to be the very last conversation that I want to have because I wanted to get your take on this whole condition thing and what it is. The next conversation we're going to be having is whether Kyrie is released or playing with any NBA team. And it's as simple as that. We've given this enough water and We've said what we had to say. Yeah. Moving on. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. But I do want to reiterate, if you do want to hear a really nuanced perspective on this from someone with multiple academic degrees who represents, uh, to my mind, one of one of the, the best black voices in sports media, right time with Bomani Jones. He talked about it on Monday as part of his podcast. He's talked about it multiple times over the last few weeks. His take on it has been nuanced and smart and filled with the kinds of insights that I don't think you are quite capable of offering as a couple of white dudes. So I think uh, Bomani Jones is the way to go for folks, as I oftentimes suggest when we're talking about these kinds of social issues. Brock, thank you for this. Tomorrow is Thursday. It's a new day. Let's talk about some fun in the sports world tomorrow. Let's do that. I love it. That's Brock Richardson. He's the host of The Neutral Zone, which you can find on AMI-audio. You can download the podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. You can even find the podcast on YouTube. You can find Alex Smythe right across from me for the National Weather Updates. Here's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Starting in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland, there's snow this morning, and then it's cloudy in the afternoon with the possibility of more snow. The high, 
is zero. In Charlottetown, PEI, it's mainly cloudy in the morning and then a mix of snow and rain in the afternoon. The high there is six. In St. John, New Brunswick, cloudy with rain or wet snow expected, wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour and a high of six. In Quebec City, Quebec, there's cloudy and heavy snow expected. Up to 20 centimeters is expected to fall and a snow warning is in effect. Wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour and a high of zero. Whew, that's a day in Quebec City right exactly. there. Exactly. You know, I've, I've been in a couple of times where it's heavy snowfall in Quebec City. Beautiful, but it's also a lot to deal with. Here in Toronto, Ontario, it's up to two centimeters of snow this morning. That is expected. And then it will be cloudy with a chance of showers in the afternoon. Uh, there is a weather advisory in effect due to the snow. Two is going to be the high. In Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, it's light snow in the morning, and then it's mainly cloudy with a high of negative two. In Brandon, Manitoba, there's light snow off and on today, and minus three is the high. In Regina, Saskatchewan, it's light snow with possible freezing rain this morning, and wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour, minus two is the high. Over in Lethbridge, Alberta, there's snow starting this morning, and wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour, the high there is zero. In Red Deer, Alberta, it's mainly cloudy with possible snow and wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour as well, and the high is minus one. In, in Whitehorse, Yukon, it's a mix of sun and clouds and minus six is the high. In Kelowna, BC, it's cloudy with a high of zero. And finally, in Vancouver, BC, it's a mix of sun and clouds. A fog advisory is in effect in the, for the morning and the high there is eight. That's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. Coming up next, Alex will be back to show off another interview from the Odin Disability, the Ontario Disability Employment Network's Rethinking Disability Conference. And we've got an interview with the organization Abilities to Work. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. We are continuing our coverage of the Ontario Disability Network's 2022 Rethinking Disability Conference. Alex Smythe was on the ground and brought us back oh so many interviews. Alex, you've got one more for us. What's on deck this time? Yeah, that's right, Dave. This is our, our final interview from uh, the conference. Uh, I had a chance to speak with Ronia Michael from Abilities to Work, and uh, she had a lot to say about uh, funding, finance, and also making accommodations and adjustments to workplaces to make them more accessible. Ronia, thank you so much for joining me today. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me today. So you just completed your session. Can you tell me a bit about what you covered during that talk? Well, um, effective grant writing techniques is something that I developed for this conference because I think it's really important that CEOs and managers of not-for-profit organizations, charitable organizations, have an understanding of what's available to them and how they can better serve, not only within their internal organization, but for clients out there who are looking for employment support. And did you kind of showcase and talk about uh, different styles or approaches in terms of funding uh, that uh, certain businesses have gone through? 
What I did discuss uh, were the multiple types of grants. So for example, anyone can apply for a project grant, which are usually available through either your municipal, your um, provincial, or your federal governments. And those are available to every not-for-profit or charitable organization across the board, and in some cases, for-profit organizations. So I talked about project grants, capital grants, what those mean, um, any type of grant that has to do with capacity building. So for example, wanting to make your spaces bigger to accommodate more people so you can expand on your service delivery projects. I also talked about research grants. You know, you have a seed idea, you want to gain more information on how to put something uh, together, but you're really not sure what it's going to look like. You want to conduct some research to get more information to bring that idea to fruition, but at the same time, you have the evidence to back that. And then lastly, and not lastly, is accessibility, which is so important. You know, one of the things that I've heard from many organizations is that they don't apply for accessibility funds. And in this day and age, with you know one out of four Canadians self-disclosing that they have a disability, it doesn't make any sense to me why businesses wouldn't do that. But what I have learned is that not-for-profits are just so used to the status quo and getting their recurring funding so they can continue, continue to pay for you know, their overhead, keeping the lights on, paying for their staff, that they don't think that they can apply for other kinds of funding that can really expand on their deliverables, but also provide the best possible experience for people with disabilities. Well, and one thing that I certainly have noticed during my time in covering the community is the fact that oftentimes when you hear businesses, nonprofits who are addressing accessibility needs, it's typically done after the fact. Like, are there certain uh, grants or, or funding available if businesses or organizations work to incorporate it from the beginning? Absolutely. There is funding available, and I want to just talk about it from two different streams. So there is the organizational stream. Um, organizations can apply for the Enabling Accessibility Fund, which is offered through Economic and Social Development Canada. So there are two sizes. There's the small size grant, which is approximately $100,000. And there's also the mid-size projects, which is $3 million. So this is to increase capacity, to make your spaces accessible. We're talking, you know, knocking down walls and making the spaces accessible. So if, let's say, for example, if you have an interview room, you're conducting intakes, and you have this tiny little space, how can you imagine someone, you know, in a wheelchair being able to come in? And what if they have a support person? So one of the things that you can do is you can apply for funding to knock down those walls and build the appropriate spaces to accommodate people. You can also utilize the funding for accessibility, accessibility buttons, pardon me, um, because as you know, all organizations and businesses must become AODA compliant by 2025. And anyone in a larger corporation that's national has to um, fall within the Canada Accessibilities Act by 2040. So the funding is available, not just through the Enabling Accessibility Grant, but there are also smaller pockets of money. So for example, each municipality has funding that is available, and anyone can you know, Google it and look for the different kinds of funding within their own municipality to apply for it. 
The Ontario Trillium Foundation is another excellent resource. They have funding for you know, capital grants, grow grants, seed grants, and so any organization can apply for those as well. And they usually fund up to about $250,000. So anything from like 10,000 to 250,000, it could be a one year or a multi-year project. And so what was the response from your session today? Was there a lot of interest in, in this topic and was there a lot of uh, conversation that sprung from it? There was a lot of conversation that sprung from it, which I was really excited to see because after seeing Joe speaking this morning, you know, and him talking about breaking barriers and the possibilities, I just felt so motivated to say to uh, the audience that you can break those barriers because together it takes all of us to facilitate change by asking for things that are outside of the traditional ask. And so people were asking me, you know, what are some of the things that you've applied for? And I shared a number of things, like for example, abilities to work can provide a laptop for any client that comes in the door. We've developed, developed digital literacy courses uh, for individuals who are just learning how to use the technology. Anything from VRS, which is video relay service that the deaf communicate with. We also have you know, how to write your email or your first email or how to um, text or go on to Zoom. And that is available. And this is where we push the boundaries with the government, by the way. Those courses are available in English, French, and American Sign Language. So what we're doing is we're working on uh, developing all of our content and our e-learning in English, French, and American Sign Language, making it accessible to everyone. Ronia, thank you so much for chatting with me today. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me here. Alex, in the same way that you're expressing gratitude and thanks to these guests for taking the time, I want to express some gratitude and thanks for you uh, to go out to that conference for uh, for Odin this week and talking to all these folks. The, the, the conversations and interviews you brought back have been illuminating. Yeah, you know, it was a ton of fun to be able to talk with everybody, to be there, be on the ground, especially, you know, after the last few years of having to do everything remotely. The conversations are so important. And, and being able to go in and see a room full of people and uh, meet with all these different organizations that are doing vital work and and sharing that message that they have to to share for improving employment for people with disabilities it's huge so i i it was a blast for me to be able to do it as well alex you just spoke to someone from abilities to work where should folks go to learn more about the work that they do yeah they can head to abilities com. That's great, Alex. Thank you for your continued coverage of this uh, Odin conference. We appreciate it. Coming up next in the Accessibility Story Roundup, I will tell you about two agreements between Accessibility Standards Canada and the government of Ontario. Also have a news update for you, and we'll share some tech trends as well. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Just before I get to the Accessibility Story Roundup, I've got a couple of news stories to share with you. 
Including some breaking news coming out in the last couple of moments. The Canadian Union of Public Employees that represents 55,000 education workers in Toronto is once again poised for job action or a potential strike on November 21st. The union says negotiations between education workers in the provinces of Ontario have stalled. So once again, putting them in a position to potentially use job action on November the 21st. That's what we know right now. We'll uh, wait and see to see how the government of Ontario responds. The government just earlier this week repealed legislation about the mandating of a contract and forced back to work legislation. So we may once again find ourselves in the middle of this tussle, but the union just held a press conference about 20 minutes ago stating the possibility of a job action on November the 21st, that being next Monday. Let's get to a couple of other news stories here. The Girl Guides of Canada are planning to rename their Brownies group. Don Kelly has more. CEO Jill Zelmanovitz says they're changing the name as of next September to further remove barriers to belonging for racialized girls and women. The section of Girl Guides for 7- and 8-year-olds teaches outdoor safety, camping basics, gardening, building with tools, and conflict management while fostering healthy friendships. Girl Guides of Canada has taken steps to be more inclusive in recent years and says it's consulting with racialized members to determine a new name. Don Kelly, The Canadian Press, Toronto. And then one of my favourite topics, getting fit, getting some exercise in. New research suggests it's more beneficial to exercise early in the day. Chuck Sievertson works up a sweat with this report. A new study finds that people who exercise in the morning had a lower risk of heart disease and stroke. The findings were more pronounced in women. Doctors aren't sure if there's a causal link. They say more research is needed to learn why mornings appear to be more beneficial. 85,000 people from age 42 to 78 were followed for up to eight years by Leiden University Medical Center in the Netherlands. The study is published in the European Journal of Preventive Cardiology. Chuck Sievertson, ABC News. Armchair scientist. Dave Brown here. I wonder if this has something to do with the lifestyle associated with waking up early. That if you are waking up at 4 a.m. to go get your workout in before work or before other obligations during the course of the day, that means you probably have to get to bed a teensy bit earlier. So if you're getting to bed a teensy bit earlier, are you going to the club? Are you popping them bottles? Are you smoking a couple heaters? I wonder how much of the lifestyle of waking up early and avoiding some of the vice styles of the night before have to do with this research. As Chuck said, a little more research is needed here, but that's my theory. That's the theory that I'm putting forward. Less darts, less booze, more exercise early in the morning, healthier human. Just saying, that's a possibility. Let's get to the accessibility story roundup. Hee-haw! So this one coming to you from a press release by Accessible Standards Canada. I'm going to edit it a little bit on the fly here to take out some of the jargon and lingo and just share with you the facts. Accessibility Standards Canada has signed two memorandums of understanding with the government of Ontario. 
the agreements, the first agreement was signed with the Ministry of Seniors and Accessibility. It aims to optimize each organization's objectives by reducing and eliminating duplication of resources. This could entail information sharing and collaborating on joint research needs. The second agreement was signed with the Ministry of Municipal Affairs and Housing. It will specifically focus on the area of the built environment and encourage collaboration on the development of accessibility standards for building codes. How often do we find ourselves talking to Thea Curdy, the president of Designable Environments, about, hey, Thea, is this in the building code? No, Dave. No, it's not. So accessibility standards in the building codes, along with municipal partners, seems like a pretty good idea. So there you go. That's my editorializing. But I just wanted to share with you the facts. None of the flowery lingo that governments like to use. I just shared the facts. That's how we be on Now with Dave Brown. Coming up after the break, we'll catch up with Ramya, Nazreen, and Alex. We'll talk about these winter storms that are hitting all over the eastern side of the country. I know our friends in the prairie already got a taste last week. But first, TikTok wants people to spend more on its platform. Alex Stone explains in Tech Trends. holiday season is approaching, I think that TikTok is hoping people will start buying more stuff directly on the app. Louise Matsakis is a technology reporter for Semaphore. She says TikTok users may begin seeing a new feature on their For You pages, particularly on live streamed videos. It's kind of like uh, QVC or the Home Shopping Network. So when you're watching one of these live streams, you'll see It's like a shopping cart icon, basically, that you can click on and then you can check out and buy those items. Matt Takis says TikTok's parent company, ByteDance, is attempting to replicate the success it's had with live stream shopping in China and the company's e-commerce plans don't end there. They want to sort of ship goods to you directly, maybe uh, run the warehouses. So I think it's part of a a bigger ambition that this company has to fully run a total e-commerce business. With Tech Trends, I'm Alex Stone, EBC News. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. It's the first real snow of the year in Southern Ontario. Before we bring in Nazreen, Ramya, and Alex to talk about our favorite and least favorite parts about uh, early snow in the winter, let's first say good morning to Ramya Amuthan, who is the co-host of Kelly and Company on AMI-audio and darn near hosted now with Dave Brown yesterday amidst technology collapse. Ramya, thank you for landing the plane for us in segment seven yesterday. You're too funny, Dave. I'm glad things got worked out for the quiz, though. I know it's very highly anticipated on Tuesday. <laughs> it sort of got worked out for the quiz. Me and Alex played yeah. one-on-one, and I cheated because I had the answers. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you you let yourself play? Okay. Well, no, no. We just, went, we just went the game versus Alex, and I was just uh, right. I was just the puppet master of the game. <laughs> yeah, but Ramya, you're now officially the best host of Now with Dave Brown, alongside being the best host on Kelly and Company. So you're uh, taking this network by storm. Uh, Ramya, what's coming up? a lot th- of haters. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what happens. <laughs> Once you wore the heavy is the head that wears the crown. Uh, Ramya, what, what's coming up on the show today at 2 p.m. Eastern time? 
We're talking to Greg David. He has our television talk for the week, and he's talking about the hottest genre on TV right now. And it's not the uh, rom-coms with the dumb dads. It's not suspense TV. It's actually holiday movies. So oh. it's out, and he's going to talk. <laughs> he's going to talk more about it. Ryan Delahanty is giving us details on the upcoming accessibility town hall in Halifax. Uh, it, this is a chance for municipal staff municipal regional municipality staff to provide updates to the disability community and we're talking grocery shopping because you may have noticed that your grocery bills are higher than they used to be because of inflation and all the above but mary mamalides giving us tips on what we can do to keep our bills down at least mm, a little bit love that that's such great practical advice from mary uh, i'm not surprised the christmas christmas movies are the uh, number one poll right now on the old television mm-hmm. stations rum yeah it feels like christmas came at us pretty quick in the last couple of days I went from no christmas to a lot of christmas everywhere i go yeah, and I I hate to say this, but I haven't gone out like barely, so I have no idea what's happening. Are, are there Christmas music playing all yeah, over the place now? Yeah, the mall yeah? the mall okay. hasn't started the Christmas music yet, but the big reindeer, the big lit up reindeer they put in one it's of the uh, pathways is already up and lit up, which is actually quite beautiful. But still, it, it, yeah. the 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 star bizzle, the uh, the the moon bucks coffee shop, they've uh, they've put up their Christmas stuff. They're handing out the uh, Christmas cups, so it's it's in full fledged now. It, it it's on. It, it's yeah. it's Christmas season. Yeah, there's no um, turning back from this point, but I can't wait for the skating rinks to be open. We chatted a little bit about this yesterday on the show, and now there's officially snow on the ground, so skating rinks, here we go. I'm surprised our colleague Paula Deneen hasn't already informed me of the Christmas movie started on the Hallmark Channel, but uh, maybe (laughs) maybe she's got too many many plates spinning like Zorba herself right now. Uh, Ramya, Mm -hmm. stay right there. Let's bring in Alex and Nazreen to be part of this conversation, as uh, it is indeed the first snow today. Maybe that's also what's making it feel a little bit like Christmas here around T.O. as we actually have accumulation on the ground, a couple centimeters there on the ground this morning. And uh, it's Southern Ontario's first real taste this year. Of course, our friends elsewhere in the country have already been given a taste of winter. Ms. Reen, what do you like most about the first snowfall of the year? It's so beautiful. I love the way it looks like crystals on the trees. And, you know, when that flake is really thick, I just feel it on my skin. It's really nice. I just hate the cold. Alex, what's we'll get to what you don't like in a second, Nazarene. Don't jump (laughs) the gun. Alex, what's your favorite part about the first snowfall of the year? Yeah, so there's something really magical about just seeing this white blanket just covering the ground. And from a a kind of blind perspective, uh, for me, I really enjoy it, especially when it's like darker in longer stretches of of the day that especially early mornings or or as we go into darkness at night it's typically a bit lighter because the snow is going to reflect more light so it actually becomes easier for me to see and navigate my environment go figure right so that's one thing i i really do love especially when i was just driving into the office this morning to see everything it's just a nice like white heat and blue hue to it oh it just feels warm and comforting Ramya, what about you? Favorite part of the first snowfall? Oh, you're on mute, Ramya. Or somebody muted Ramya. Or our board collapsed again. Okay, well, my bad. I muted myself and I didn't even realize. (laughs) Sorry. Um, Alex, I agree with you. I was saying it's not my favorite part, but I do agree that when when there's a nice solid layer of snow on the ground and uh, things are paved, it's like high contrast. But uh, my favorite part is how quiet things get. So after the first snowfall, I do feel like it 
gets less cold. I'm not sure if that's scientific, but I feel less cold. And then um, <laughs> the streets get quieter. And if you go on, you know, trail walks, the forest feels quieter. And that's just like that snow sound treatment <laughs> that I really love. Mm, love that. What about just the idea of being the first person to put footprints down? That happened to me this morning walking along my pathway. I was clearly the first person who'd walked through it. And it was so nice just to put my feet down as the first step. I felt like someone blazing my own trail. Aww. It's like the Oregon Trail over here. Yeah, it's super <laughs> satisfying. Okay, Nazreen, you uh, already led this off a little bit. You said you don't like the cold. What's the worst part about winter when you have a disability? Okay, uh, I'd say stiffness. I think I feel it like a week before the first snowfall. Um, it's it's when you have uh, rheumatoid arthritis, that's what you get. So it's uh, it's a bit difficult. Also, invisible ice. Um, yeah. Yeah. So black ice, it's really hard to commute when it's winter and you have a disability. It's something that is challenging for many and especially me. And that's why um, for for so many, they use, you know, um, the canes, uh, the identification identification canes just to kind of uh, show people that, you know, just be careful around you. Romy, what about you? What's the thing that annoys you most about winter as a person with a disability? I definitely feel like my confidence goes down for traveling in the winter, um, mm -hmm. whether it be ice or just, uh, you know, everything piling up on top of ice and snow, you know, constructions, uh, it getting darker earlier, the wind um, sounds, uh, it just feels very loud with all the, the slushiness and all of that with the main streets and, and vehicles. Uh, trying to get on and off buses, like mm. finding bus mm. stops and finding the exact spots where the bus doors are going to open. All of these different things to me, um, adds up to not feeling as confident traveling in the snow. So along those lines, the one that got me this morning is not really knowing where a curve, a curb ends and a street begins where that step down is going to be because you lose all the differentiators. I don't mm -hmm. use a cane when I'm navigating. So I, I like to use those color contrasts. And if everything's just white, you never know when there's going to be a step down. And that really gets to me. It just makes me a lot more cautious as I'm approaching the edge of anything. It slows me down. My, my walk this morning was 31 minutes instead of 27 minutes. You know, those four minutes of not uh, wanting to tear any more Achilles tendons or hurt any more knees or fall anymore. I'm down to zero hit points between the number of falls I've taken this year. So I, uh, I had to be very careful and added four minutes to my commute this morning. Alex, what about you? Uh, pet peeves as a person with a disability in wintertime. Yeah, so definitely ice is a huge one. I mean, speaking from experience, when I was out in Edmonton, uh, there was – I think a stretch of like a couple of days, I felt like three different times uh, on my commute back and forth. And I, I invested in anti-slip winter boots, which I highly recommend to everyone. Uh, but in terms of pet peeves, the one that gets me is when you're in a residential area and people just don't shovel or or clear or ice or salt their um, their sidewalks for, for people going by. And, and I get it if it's not, you know, in the first 28 hours, but it's like, Okay, 48 hours, 72 hours, you know, like how long do you go if people just don't do anything to it and it becomes a hazard, especially in this time of year where you're going to get colder temperatures then it's going to warm up and then, okay, maybe that snow starts to melt, but then it freezes at night and you're just getting these ice patches that have like footprints in it. So it's just like jagged and it's hard to, to walk on. That's mm -hmm. what really gets me because there's in Burlington, there's a couple of places I know around where I walk that... 
They're notorious for it. Every single year, they never take care of their sidewalks. It's like, well, maybe I should start calling up the city, you know, figuring out, hey, if you're not going to take care of it, this is a health hazard. Mm. What if I slip? What if I fall? What if I injure myself? I'll pick up on that a step further because it already occurred this morning on my walk-in that clearly a service came by and cleared the snow for a couple of driveways in the neck of the woods, but they left the snow banks on the sidewalk. So they cleared the driveway and then just left the blockades of piled up snow on either side of the driveway. And they did it eight or nine times. Again, you could tell it was a service. It wasn't just one person. It was the service that was hired decided to leave piles of snow on the sidewalk because they were like, oh, that's where my jurisdiction ends, which is such a terrible, inconsiderate thing to do. So I would almost rather someone just leave it alone completely than do the actual effort and then the passive aggressive piling of the snow in my way. What do you think, Remya? Yeah, it's true. Snow piles, it can be just as bad as you talking earlier about the curbs, right? Not knowing where uh, the sidewalks are, like if one curb cut, how it meets the other, like the angle that you need to turn in. And in residential streets, this is terrible. So all my walks with Glizzy is just absolutely getting buried in snow sometimes because by the time I hit it, it's too late. I've already fell face first into the pile. See, Rummy is going down to zero hit points as well. Here as well, we have yeah. limited hit points here. Uh, Nazreen, how are the good people of Guelph when it comes to leaving their piles of snow in the middle of the sidewalk? So far, so good. So far, so good. I think the biggest struggle is in front of a bus stop. I don't know if you guys had this issue where the oh, bus yeah. stops yeah. at a at a point where it's just a hill of snow, and I'm like, can you go around? I can't see where the door is. Um, that's, I think that's another challenge of commuting and it's a struggle for life, but, um, I feel like Guelph here, they're taking care of their sidewalk so far. It's the annual reminder that places like Sweden, certainly certain cities in Sweden prioritize cleaning sidewalks and cleaning uh, bike lanes and cleaning alternative areas of transportation before they clear roads because they know that vulnerable people are oftentimes not in cars. So they prioritize the snow cleaning for them first before they start doing major roads because, you know, cars can drive through snow. It's harder to walk through snow. So there's your annual reminder on that one. Speaking of walking through the snow, a question of practicality, gang. How much snow needs to accumulate before you start popping on the boots? I'm still rocking my loafers today, but I definitely on the walk-in had that moment of saying, this was close to a boots day. This was real close to a boots day with, I'd say, about three to five, maybe a little bit more centimeters accumulation on the ground. We were right there. We were in the boot zone. Ramya, what about you? When's the boot zone kick in? Yo, it already kicked in yesterday. There was barely any snow on the ground. I'm not joking. I, and, you know, I'm coming from a place of when I was a teenager, I didn't want to wear any winter attire. You can never catch me with mitts or hats or boots on at all. But now, like, I'm already, you know, I was pulling out parka-ish coats, like, last week, two weeks ago. Uh, I already have my big woolly hat on. And it, they're technically rain boots. But, yeah, they, they come up to my knees. And I've already worn them in this snow-ish weather. Nazreen, when do the boots come out? Again, you're fashionable, so you probably have fashionable boots nonetheless. Okay, yeah, I'm guilty of this because I don't wear proper boots. I don't buy proper boots until like halfway through the winter because I'm delusional. I'm absolutely <laughs> delusional of what what snow. I know I can walk in heels in heels with with snow. You know, it's it's okay. Those boots can have heels. It looks nice. Uh, it's all about the presentation. Forget health. My feet can be frozen and I can't feel it at the end of the day. It's okay. 
Um, <laughs> but that's that's just me. Uh, but I yeah, I need to I need to take it. I can slip and fall, and I think that's where it ends from how many times I slip. And then I'm like, okay, you know what? I actually need proper winter boots. So yeah, halfway, I think that's safe to say. I'm going to ask the same question to Eliza in a moment about when the boots come out. But Alex, when do the boots come out for you? How much accumulation are we talking about before the boots get busted out? Yeah, you know, today would have been a perfect day to bust out the boots. But unfortunately, I'm not home. I'm, I'm staying in a hotel <laughs> this week. So I have these like soft uh, uh, cotton shoes on. It's not ideal for wet snow conditions. So if I was at home and I was commuting in, my boots would be on. And I typically am the kind of person that unless there is absolutely no snow around, once the boots come on out, they're staying on. Mm. You know, I, I'm keeping them until it's like 10 degrees and there's no snow and I'm, <laughs> I'm good and then I'll go back to the shoes. Eliza, when do the boots come out for you? How much accumulation are we talking about before the boots go on? Well, I, I was planning on waiting a bit, but I went out for dinner with a friend last night and I tried the streetcar there. There were no streetcars, so I walked and I was wearing running shoes and my feet have not been that soaked in a very long time. So boots today, boots forever until the snow is gone. Boots today, <laughs> boots forever. I think that might be the theme of this sentence. I, I will say, guys, I, uh, as, as some of you know, I'm heading on vacation next week to Montreal, my old stomping grounds, my own hometown. And I make fun of you Southern Ontarians. I really do because I'm like, oh, y'all don't understand winter. You guys, y'all can't figure this out. It's not that cold. You're all right. And now here I am sitting here two days before I leave trying to figure out, so how many coats do I need to bring exactly on this trip? Should I bring my winter coat? Because, you know, in Montreal, it's going to be about five to six degrees colder. Even today, we're seeing 10 to 15 centimeters of accumulation of snow. I'm like, do I have to bring boots and shoes and a winter coat and a scarf and a toque and my funky gloves? Because I'm now just a soft Southern Ontarian or I've forgotten about the Quebec Quebec experience. Eliza, Alex, Nazreen, Ramya, thank you all for this. We appreciate you guys. And uh, Ramya, we'll talk to you tomorrow. Nazreen, Alex, we'll talk to you on Friday. For now, I wish you all a good day. That's the crew, including Nazreen Abdelmajid, audio producer for AMI-audio, Eliza Rocco in our audio control room, Alex Smythe co-hosting today and hosting for me later this week and next week while I'm on vacation. And Ramya Emlithin is the co-host of Kelly and Company, which comes your way at 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. That's all the time we have for the day today, or not for the day, for the show today, but we'll be back again tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Eastern time. We'll talk about Movember. Shane Demarchant will tell you about the 16th annual Movember campaign for men's health awareness. I've already sent in a picture to our TV crew of myself at a protest in the fall of 2010 on Parliament Hill in Ottawa when the radio station I was working for was trying to get the Prime Minister at the time, Stephen Harper, to grow a mustache. So I have deep roots, deep follicles, if you will when it comes to Movember. Until we hang out again tomorrow morning, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. 
Hi, I'm Jenny Bovard. Join me monthly for Low Vision Moments, where I speak with awesome guests about some of the amusing things that happen when you're blind or partially sighted. Watch on YouTube or download Low Vision Moments from your favorite podcast distributor.